G'day folks and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. Okay, Tim, we're back after last week's episode where we looked at the firmament or the dome or the vault or whatever you want to call it. Um, And last time we looked at a heap of scriptures that commonly get used to defend the flat earth cosmology and you managed to impress us all with your pronunciation of some tricky words. So what are we talking about this time? Um, Well, for the record, I think expanse is the word I'd choose to describe the rakia. And as long as I don't have to say hug again, uh, that'd be good. It doesn't have all that unnecessary baggage of hardness tied to it you know when you say expanse and it maintains the idea of being impenetrable so you you get the the correct sense that was meant to be implied by the the choice of the word we're still in our reading from genesis 1 verses 6 to 8 and uh just to refresh your memory so i'm going to read that again but this time i'm going to go from the csb uh because i much prefer the choice of terminology there So from verse 6, then God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse sky. Evening came and then morning, the second day. So by now, listeners must be thinking, we looked at Rakia and we get a shapeless separation between waters. We looked at Gao Gao and we were sort of close to a circle shape, but it was really about circular motion and you'll uh, correct me on all my massacring of these words hoog or whatever that was sounded like a circle too but that turned out to be more of a circumference or an, an outer boundary with nothing really in it and then we tried a gouda um reminds me of my favorite cheese but that was some kind of <laughs> point of convergence or a thing that holds everything together instead of like a round dome so what does this picture of the cosmos look like if it doesn't resemble those interesting pictures that I see on the internet? Ah, well, that's, that's just it. That's the million-dollar question. What picture? You know, the Bible wasn't written with illustrations. It's not meant to be converted to pictures and diagrams. I know everyone wants to do that, you know, but look at the text we've been reading, you know, poetry, prophecy, songs. None of this is meant to be taken literally. None of these texts, not even Genesis 1, were written to tell us the shape or the construction of the cosmos. Oh, and by the way, we're not even going there when it comes to science. There, there actually are scientists who do real science. That's how we know the Earth really is round. Don't be sucked in by people who don't understand the science trying to tell you that you can't trust the science. Uh, the words we studied tell us that the firmament is not solid, but it is impenetrable. You can't go to the heavens or the underworld because only the Elohim can go there. It's like the places where water comes from. It's not for us. It's for the gods. People don't control the weather. God does. The earth isn't flat, even though it looks that way. And ancient astronomy confirms that this was a known fact, even back then. The earth isn't a circle. The boundary of the land, not the planet, is its circumference, the border that God set when he divided the nations, according to Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9 and Genesis 11, which we will study later in detail. But aren't there ancient maps that show this frisbee, round, flat-like Earth? Well, yeah, there are. The 6th century BC Babylonian map, known as the Imago Mundi, is probably one of the most famous. Uh, That's from the Latin uh, image of the world. And it's a depiction of the land of Babylonia, stamped into a clay tablet. Now, the Imago Mundi is important because it is roughly contemporaneous with the biblical exilic period. 
and provides a concrete example of the kind of cosmology being done at the time and in the region of 6th century BC Babylon, which is exactly where Israel was at the time in exile. My argument for the composition of the primeval history in the same context helps to explain the similarities and the polemic nature of the biblical text. It also goes a long way toward forming an accurate picture of the nature of cosmological truth claims in the ancient Near East. So this tablet, it's not a map of the planet. I mean, this becomes clear when we recognise that Babylonia is depicted as a circular land. It's not circular. And the adjoining nations are depicted as triangles. They're not triangular. Radiating from the outer edge of a larger concentric circle, which represents the sea, uh, the sea isn't a circle either, and the adjoining nations do not have seas between them and Babylon. The Babylonians knew that the sea didn't cut them off from these nations, which you could walk to without getting your feet wet. This map is a depiction of cosmic order and not a geographical navigation tool. The circular shape reflects the way national borders were thought of. Uh, that's why we have it in the, in the Bible, you know, the circle of the earth. You know, that's meant to say the border of the land. Okay, as a circumference around the land, regardless of the real shape of the land. The border of sea around Babylonia is not water, it's the chaos and disorder that exists outside of the protection of Babylon's sovereign god and the aegis of the king. The shape simply isn't the point, and it doesn't matter. So why do people keep making these pictures of snow globes? Well, the first audience subscription knew how to interpret these texts and had no difficulty with grasping the concept of a cosmos integrated on three levels with varying degrees of access between them. But when we arrive in the Hellenistic period and the formation of the Septuagint, we encounter Greek philosophy on the nature of the cosmos. So they were asking questions that the Bible wasn't written to answer, a trend that continues to this day. It's the whole creation science thing and all that that, that uh, you hear about. The Greeks translated rakia as stereoma, meaning something established or steadfast and implying something solid and immovable rather than impenetrable. So this shows the first steps away from the biblical text's meaning. Now in the Christian period, uh, St. Jerome translated the Greek stereoma into the Latin firmamentum to try and capture that same meaning. So we still have firmament today from that translation. Again, we're further away from original truth. Despite centuries of attempts to depict the cosmos as a series of concentric spheres, no agreement could be reached in what they might be made of and in what state such matter might occur. Eventually, modern science prevailed to reveal the true nature of the universe, but the argument over what the ancients believed was far from resolved. The early proponents of higher criticism were quick to take the text literally in an effort to discredit scripture as authoritative on any grounds. I mean, you've got your uh, scholarship being done by atheists at this point. So, yeah, it was uh, a a dark time for for scriptural studies. With their work forming the basis of many later developments, their view of the Israelites as primitive and naive savages was sustained. This is what happens when the leading biblical sciences are conducted by unbelievers while the faithful turn anti-academic and talk about blind faith instead of doing the study. As such, the prevailing view became that the authors of scripture really believed in a flat earth supported by pillars covered by a hard dome that kept the floodwaters out as their literal understanding of the material universe. And only recently are we beginning to see any light out of this ironically enlightened darkness with the advent of honest discussion of the 
of the Bible's literary context. So when we remove the atheistic and anti-Semitic worldview of 19th century German scholarship and throw away the crude medieval drawings of dome cosmology inspired by the Vulgate and ditch the Greek philosophy that crept into the understanding preserved in the Septuagint, we're free to read the Hebrew Bible and simply take its affirmations without trying to build them into diagrams or 3D models. And when we do that, what do these texts tell us? That the God of the Bible prepared our world with a place for the sacred and a place for the profane. And he set the domain of man right in the middle so that we might experience interactions with both sides. God is separate because he's holy, but he's not out of reach. We don't need to go where he is to be safe because he can, and he did, come to us. The shape of the cosmos doesn't matter because the earth, which was known to be spherical back in the 7th century BC, is the only part of this three-tiered cosmos that actually has shape. Heaven doesn't have physical shape because it doesn't have physicality. It doesn't even have locality, and the same is true of the underworld. Just because people get buried in the ground, that doesn't mean you can dig your way to Hades. Again, Hebrew doesn't do abstracts. They're going to talk about immaterial things in material terms because that's how functional existence works. It's not like modern science that says if you can't measure it, then it ain't real. That's not how this works. Okay, so can we take those dome cosmology diagrams and just throw them in the bin? Yep. Uh, the world we need to be focused on is the world we live in. Those charts only serve to over-literalise Hebrew poetry and idiomatic expression. They don't communicate biblical truth. We believe in the same world the ancient Hebrews believed in, the one that God touched with his own hands and feet to seek and to save we who were lost. And it's important for those of us who actually want to have any kind of credibility in sharing the gospel that we have this worldview correct. Getting it wrong means falling into one of at least two major errors, the first being that we make the Bible look ridiculous when we say that ancient people were stupid enough to think that the earth was flat. I mean, this really undermines the authority of biblical writers to make truth claims in scripture because if we can't trust their, per their perception of reality, how can we argue for their affirmation of truth? And another major error is actually believing the flat earth theory by over-literalizing the text. And that's destroying our own credibility by appearing to have our own perception of truth and reality in a mess. And a third problem with the 19th century German higher criticism view is that it rests on the atheistic assumption that the text isn't referring to spiritual realms full of intelligent supernatural entities. Now that might be easy to miss in our English translation of Genesis 1, but it's much harder to deny elsewhere in scripture. And if the assumption is that Genesis is the account of origins, then where are these entities? If they're not described plainly in Genesis 1, they don't form part of the real world and can't be taken seriously. So in all of these scenarios, the damage done is to the credibility that we have as a witness to the truth of God's word and the reliability of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember when I talked about Samson in the first episode of the podcast and discussed how Samson's private indiscretions did not invalidate his witness, but when his errors became public knowledge, he crossed the line that ruled him out of being further use in the plan of God. And the power which came from the Holy Spirit was lost along with his witness. Now, I've talked about this before, but the power and authority of God works in your life when there is alignment between God's word and your own life. That doesn't happen when you choose a worldview that comes from a place of deception or dishonesty or cultural rebellion. But after all that, it is a choice. Can I adjust my worldview to a truly biblical one that agrees with both the scriptures and the real science? Or am I leaning toward my own bias that says one or possibly both of those authorities can't be trusted? I mean, we can even make it simpler. Do I desire to understand the biblical author's perspective 
or do I want to hold a view that has credibility in the eyes of certain other people? Am I pleasing God or man? Now, I'll stop preaching there. Some of our listeners might have noticed that I said nothing about the cosmic tree idea that often forms part of this kind of discussion, you know, when we're talking about the three tiers of the cosmos. Uh, I am going to tackle that, but it will have to wait for a future episode because it doesn't come from the text we've been looking at. We will get there. But I do have one more thing to say about the firmament, and it comes from the Gospel of Mark. In chapter 1, Mark describes the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So here's verses 9 to 11, Mark chapter 1 from the CSB. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Now at the end of Mark's Gospel, the end of Jesus' ministry is recorded. See if you can spot some similarities. This is Mark 15, verses 36 to 39, again from the CSB. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick, and offered him a drink, there's Jesus, and said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, when the centurion, who was standing opposite him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. Now, I'm not about to bore you with discussions about chiasm here, but you can see that, the, that first the Spirit descends, then Jesus breathes his last. God says, This is my Son. Then the centurion says, Truly this man was the Son of God. What about this? Elsewhere, Jesus says that Elijah has come, referring to John the Baptist. John was present at the baptism, and thus Elijah was there, at least symbolically. And then Elijah is mentioned at the crucifixion. You can see the parallels. So what do we make of this? As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, which is matched by, then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It looks very much to me like the tearing of the temple curtain was witnessed by the centurion from up on that hill where Jesus was crucified. That being the case, as much as people like to say that it was the veil of the Holy of Holies that was torn, and that's a nice thought and everything, but nobody could have seen that and the crucifixion at the same time, it had to be the outer curtain of the temple, the one at the entrance. There are other people who have noted this, and I'm actually bringing it up because I recently read a journal article about this very thing, and I'm going to share an excerpt from it here. So this is from uh, an article called The Heavenly Veil Torn, Mark's Cosmic Inclusio. Uh, it's written by David Ulansey, originally published in the Journal of Biblical Literature of Spring 1991, uh, from pages 123 to 125. You can find this online. So here's the quote. The evidence to which I refer consists of a passage in Josephus's Jewish War, in which he describes the outer veil of the Jerusalem temple as it had appeared since the time of Herod. According to Josephus, and for those of you who aren't familiar with Josephus, he was a famous historian who lived in Israel in the first century. Sorry, back to the quote. Uh, this outer veil was a gigantic curtain, 80 feet high. It was, he says, a Babylonian tapestry, with embroidery of blue and fine linen, of scarlet also, and purple wrought with marvellous skill. Nor was this mixture of materials without its mystic meaning. It typified the universe. 
Then Josephus tells us what was pictured on this curtain. Portrayed on this tapestry was a panorama of the entire heavens. In other words, the outer veil of the Jerusalem temple was actually one huge image of the starry sky. Thus, upon encountering Mark's statement that the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, any of his readers who had ever seen the temple or heard it described would instantly have seen in their mind's eye an image of the heavens being torn and would immediately have been reminded of Mark's earlier description of the heavens being torn at the baptism. This can hardly be coincidence. The symbolic parallel is so striking that Mark must have consciously intended it. So that's the end of the quote. So Mark, reflecting on the ministry of Christ, is telling us clearly that the firmament, or the expanse of the heavens, actually was penetrated by God and that he was here with us in the person of Jesus. He crossed the impenetrable divide. He came into our world and lived among us. This was a unique time in the history of the world when God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, broke through. And the description of that cosmic intervention is the tearing of a curtain. Not someone knocking on the outside of a dome of bronze. Not Jesus waving at us from the other side of a glass ceiling. He tore the curtain of heaven and came to us, and the same happened when he died. We see now why the heavens are elsewhere described as a tent or a scroll or a garment. It's not a hard surface, and nobody thought it was, but it was designed so that only the Creator had power to come through it. As far as humans are concerned, it was and remains impenetrable. The good news for us is that Jesus is coming back as certainly as he came at first, and when he does, he's going to bring us through. Love that. That's so good. That's it for this episode. Take some time to think about all that's been uh, discussed at this show. And when we come back next week, we'll be talking about dry places instead of wet ones. And we'll uh, mess with your head just a little bit more. But for now, it's time for some giant questions. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers.outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you with answers to your giant questions. All right, so recently I got a question from Chad Bird. Some of you may have heard of him before. Chad Bird is an American, a former Lutheran pastor and seminary professor who now works as a speaker, scholar, writer, and apparently a truck driver as well. He writes for a few Christian publications. He has a podcast and a blog. So Chad recently opined on Facebook that the conquest of Canaan was a righteous judgment on the Canaanites for their idolatry. Now, uh, I countered that by saying, well, the Canaanites were not being judged as they were not under law, nor were they practicing idolatry, but rather they were being subservient to their national gods, which were allotted to them by Yahweh the Most High. So my point being, uh, the Canaanites weren't being judged for evil deeds or something. My point is that it's more about what they were doing in a ritual sense and who they were becoming, which is foundational to the reappearance of giants in the period following the flood. Anyway, you can read a lot more about that in my book, Answers to Giant Questions. Chad had a response for me, so he challenged me. He said, uh, here's my challenge to you. Are there, let's say, one or two or even three reputable Christian teachers prior to the modern age 
who taught this, that is the, the allotment of the nations according to the number of sons of God, as per Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9 from the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, he said, I could be mistaken, but I do not think there are. I'm ready to be corrected if there are. Well, okay, Chad, thanks for your question. How about these? So uh, I'm going to read you an extract from a sermon which was first presented by uh, Father Joseph Ratzinger in 1962. Uh, this was entitled The Unity of the Nations. And uh, some of you might recognize that name because Father Joseph Ratzinger was later given the title Pope Benedict the 16th. So I'm uh, refuting a reformer with the Pope here as an evangelical. I think that's quite funny. Okay, so here's the quote. And this, this part of the speech is a citation of St. Origen in his work, Contra Celsus. Okay, so this is a, I think a second century writing of origin that I'm quoting. For God did not govern the earth by himself in direct fashion, but from the very beginning had portioned it out to different overseers, who had given the individual peoples their religious and political laws. Religion, consequently, was part of national identity, and the fact that a person belonged to a particular nation was something that was decreed by divine governance. With his doctrine of an apportioning of the world to different regions, Celsus set out a schema that not only had made deep inroads into the Greco-Roman world, but also had found a welcome in the doctrine of the angels of the peoples in the thinking of late Judaism, for which the Greek translation of Deuteronomy 32.8 provided the inspiration. When the Most High divided the peoples, when he scattered the sons of Adam, he set out boundaries for the nations corresponding to the number of the angels of God. This verse was also the point of departure for the dialogue between Origen and Celsus on the value and limits of national identity. Origen accepted the fact that the world was portioned out to different heavenly rulers, but he added that there was still a question as to who planned this apportionment and how it happened. The answer to this he took from the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, 1-9. Continuing reading from uh, the Pope's speech, this is compiled into a book, by the way, uh, which is called the Unity of the Nations. Origen saw in these angels an instance of the punishment that was a consequence of the falling away of the peoples from the spiritual unity of humankind. He believed, moreover, that the angels of the peoples were usurpers who lawlessly seized power for themselves and sought out territories that they could dominate, which corresponded to the godlessness of human beings that had opened the door to their seizure of power. And this new order, towards which Origen was looking, was at bottom not a renewal of something this worldly, but rather the eschatological kingdom of peace in which the Babylonian division of humanity was overcome, the rule of the angels of the peoples was abolished, and the entire oikumeni was brought together in the one polis of Jesus Christ. Augustine is also spoken of in this same work as follows. Augustine's thinking coincides with that of Origen. Just as Origen had understood the religious absolutizing of national identity as the work of the demonic angels of the peoples and the supranational unity of Christians as the being set free from the prison of the people, so Augustine viewed the political from the perspective of antiquity, namely as the divinization of the polis, 
albeit in the sense of its demonization, and saw in Christianity the overcoming of the demonic power of the political, which had suppressed the truth. For him, likewise, the pagan gods were not mere illusions, but the fantastic masks behind which real powers and forces were hidden, which denied man access to absolute values by enclosing him in relativity, and the domain of the political was the actual domain of these powers. And further, Augustine's political theology, Ipsi dat regna terrena, it is God himself who distributes earthly kingdoms. Both Origen and Augustine followed the late Jewish and early Christian tradition of seeing the division of humanity into nations primarily from the perspective of the problem of language. Human beings were unavoidably cut off from one another by the vast number of different languages. Both Origen and Augustine saw in this confusion of languages the sign of the sinfulness that was to be conquered in Christ Jesus. All right, so that's the uh, end of that reference there to that uh, text from Father Joseph Ratzinger. And uh, I think that speaks pretty well for itself. So, uh, yeah, Chad, if you're listening, um, I hope that answers your question. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless.